This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Just in time for the holidays, fill your home and your season for less at homedepot.com. With up to 40% off a wide assortment of select bedding and bath linens. Update your bed or bath online, right from the comfort of your own cozy couch. Even get free delivery and flexible returns. How's that for holiday cheer? Up to 40% off holiday home decor improved from homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Everyone needs more vacation, right? The new United Gateway card knows how to take you away with great travel rewards and no annual fee, ever. The wait for vacation is over. Tap now or visit unitedgatewaycard.com to apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want a top Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Samson Folk, and today a very special guest, somebody who wrote one of my favorite pieces, anybody outside of the Raptors sphere of Twitter or Raptors Republic, Yahoo Sports, The Athletic, Blake Murphy, etc., has written this year a terrific piece on the Raptors defense. Mike Prada, who is a senior NBA writer over at SB Nation, a contemporary of Michael Pinas, who is a friend of the show. Mike, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. You Canadians have taken over basketball media. There are there are crap ton of you guys at national outlets now. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's definitely a growing it's a growing market for the Raptors, I suppose, because they they were second fiddle for a long time, but now that they've won something, and especially with the arrival of Kawhi Leonard, Yahoo Sports Canada reviving what they had. It's yeah. it's there's a revival of sorts. It's a cool thing to see. Yeah, no longer can you say that the media doesn't pay attention. You've got you've got the Yahoo Canada crew. You've got Alex Wong. You've got Searit over at Yahoo. You've got James Herbert at CBS. You've got man, you got Blake and all the really good athletic folks. Eric, I mean, you guys are everywhere, man. Yeah, Louis Zatzman, I think, is maybe and Vivek Jacob. Those two guys, they write incredible stuff. So and Joe Wolfond. He does league-wide stuff yeah, for the sport. This but... all day. So yeah. I hope Raptors <laughs> don't actually think that like we like have this secret vendetta against y'all because you guys have basically taken over anyway. Yeah, it's um, definitely well represented, I think. <laughs> and anytime th- there is, there's, you know, with some people there's an inferiority complex. I don't know no. what percentage yep. of it, but <laughs> there. <laughs> Like like we used that term earlier, nebulous, uh, to describe other things. It is a nebulous space for Raptors writers and fans, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I can say this because we're for fans by fans, so that's like just how how fandom works. It just it's funny to me. Anyway, thank you for the very nice words on the the piece, um, and I appreciate all the work you guys do. Obviously, I mean, it's it's actually really cool to hear like you guys really like it because I mean. You're so you guys really go in depth with some of the film stuff. Yeah, it's um, I not to hype the uh, the Toronto 
I guess, writers up too much. But if you were to hear that it was good from one group of people, one demographic, I think that would be the one to hear it from. But I'm I'm ready to ask you about that piece. And right. myself and, and a couple of my contemporaries have been highlighting Pascal Siakam's absurd range defensively this year. And it's it's incredible. But you do league-wide stuff. It's hard to notice minute stuff about every team. It's That's a difficult thing to keep track of. When did you start to recognize Pascal's unique role in the Raptors' defense, and did that inspire you to write the piece? I mean, honestly, the answer is probably last year. I mean, if we're being real about it. Um, he's cranked it up to a more of a level this year, but this is the kind of stuff that he was doing last season. I found him to be one of the most fascinating players in the league for so many reasons, and I, I've written, I wrote about that during the playoffs. He's sort of this like kind of chaos not even a chaos conductor. He sort of like just thrives in these moments where the game just seems so scrambled. And yet he seems to just be like everywhere flying around. It almost is like he doesn't, he's not as effective. You can't just like sort of run around and kind of let off this energy. And I just found that to be a really fascinating type of player. And now this year, now that he's the main guy, now that they don't have Kawhi Leonard, they've cranked it up even more. So, you know, with a lot of the things that like sort of you write about, you, you, they're just things that you notice over time. And like, maybe there's a critical mass, like for, I think in the Toronto's case, it was the the winning streak where it's like, okay, maybe now it's time to sort of dump my brain out of this thought that I've had for a while. And I did not intend to really write about Pascal this time specifically because I've written about him before, but he's certainly for sure the avatar of like this, this Toronto defense that just seems to be, I mean, it's just so interesting that they have, decided that we're going to put people in rotation on purpose. Uh, it's, it's very counterintuitive, and I just find it to be very interesting that it's working in a league where you're not supposed to be giving up so many three-point attempts, and you're not supposed to, it's not supposed to be good that you're running out on these shooters all over the place, and yet they've sort of turned what should be a weakness into a strength. Um, so that's why I just found what they're doing so interesting. It's it's interesting, and I thought your analogy for the piece was quite good about being in a haunted house or seeing ghosts and not being able to respond how you're how you mentally prepared to respond in that with that stimuli. It's you have this idea of how you're going to attack this situation, like basketball players say. Well, if the ball comes to me here, let's say I'm seeing they're shading me to the baseline, and I have how much however much room to shoot, they decide between a drive and a shot. Whereas the Raptors. They throw this completely different defense at you, oftentimes coming off of something you highlighted in your piece a lot. A scram switch is where a lot of the the breakdowns come, or what seem to be breakdowns, but as you mentioned in your piece as well, the back end of the Raptors' defense is already in motion trying to predict what that move might be. And trying to think of how Raptors, the Raptors came up with that, you highlighted the, the Sonics from, I believe it was 1993, and... Coach Kloppenberg, I believe, if that's how you pronounce it. How did you find that gem? Where did that come from? Honestly, like, I mean, there is really no connection that I know of between the teams other than in my own head. You know, I've watched a lot of basketball in the 90s. I don't know why, where it came from one day when I was sort of thinking about it. And, you know, when when you watch these games, there's obviously you're looking for some of the nitty gritty stuff, but like one of the things I try really hard to do is to not get so bogged down while watching so that I can kind of take in like what it feels like. Like if, if, if there's one thing I want to do with the stuff I write, I, it's less like kind of is this stuff working or not? And it's more 
this is what it kind of feels like in a larger sense. Just it feels like a haunted house. Like obviously it's a good thing. That's why I'm writing about it, but it's less about like sort of whether it's effective and more about sort of this feeling that you get watching it. So I guess in, in, because I had watched so much in nineties basketball and because, you know, followed the league for such a long time. And because I really love those Sonics teams, I guess it sort of just clicked in my head as I was watching a game. I forget which recent Raptors game. And it's not even sure where it just seems like they're just going everywhere. And all the things that I have in my notes are like, man, look how many closeouts they have. Play close out all the way over here and here. And it kind of got me thinking, they're like, man, what's the last team that really kind of ran and pressured like this? And I guess it's just the association kind of just happened. And so at that point, I just sort of did a lot of research and just sort of watched some old Sonics games. I looked through some old articles and, you know, I, I wasn't intending to suggest that like they were inspired by them. I just, to me, it was just sort of a similar par- parallel in that this is a team that does something that for the time was considered unconventional, for felt gimmicky, felt like something that they did to create like kind of these chaos situations that they would capitalize on and sort of in a way mask like their lack of execution in the half court. I mean, we can talk more about that with Toronto as we go. And it just it sort of felt very similar to how they played and how Toronto plays. Um, I know Dwayne Casey was on that staff one year, but other than that, I don't know any real connections. It just it was just one of those things that kind of came to me just because I've like kind of watched. I mean, it's going to sound really conceited, but just because I've watched a lot of basketball and I think a lot about how these experiences feel and how they're similar. Um, so I don't know. It sort of just came to me in that way. Well, and Pascal Siakam is, as you said, one of the most interesting players in the league. Is there a similar linchpin to that Sonics defense, a similar player to Pascal Siakam, or is it, or is it more just across the board people contributing? I think it's a little bit different. It's a little more across the board because, I mean, if you had to, it was a very different era, of course, in the Seattle days. Right. You couldn't you couldn't play zone defense like Toronto does so well. You couldn't. You had to trap more aggressively on the ball, and you know you'd have to disguise your help defense and your zoning off the ball, and like kind of all those help principles a little bit more because there was a legal defense. And on the flip side, of course, it was less about these wild closeouts then because nobody spaced the floor back then, whereas now people are spaced all the way to the three point line. So I don't think there's like a great direct apples to apples comparison. I guess the closest thing would be. Um, maybe Derek McKee before they traded him for Detlef Shrimp. He was kind of that like long rangey guy that sort of was at the top of this press. But I think over time it kind of became very much a, the, the Gary Payton specialty. Um, and they're very different players. Payton is probably a little bit more like, I wouldn't say he's exactly like Kyle Lowry, but he's probably got the, the plays of position Kyle Lowry plays with more of the mentality that Pascal had. He's like Lowry so I, and Ananobi smushed together, maybe. Kind of, yeah. And I think in back in the day, the way that, that Seattle did it, it was much more sort of scripted. It was much more, our goal is to force you to this spot on the floor, and then we swarm. Whereas I think with Toronto, it's a lot more like kind of, here's the philosophy, and then we ad- adapt everything we do to that, whether it's we're in a zone whether it's in a box and one or triangle and two or 
the traps I put on James Harden or in a more standard alignment. Like they, the one difference I think is that back then you, you really scripted it out a lot more because the game was much more of a half court game and much more of a pounded inside game. Now that the game is so much more spread out and so much more free flowing, you need the principles of the Seattle defense, but you don't want too many rigid rules you want to be able to be flexible that's sort of i think a big difference between the two teams and a way that this is kind of an interesting evolution of, of what seattle is doing yeah you highlighted that the the overlap is switch two on two screens defend with all five guys and force opponents to vulnerable checkpoints and then trap or attack that and i think i last week i was i had dan divine from the ringer on the podcast and i think i called the defense an amorphous blob of intelligence and tenacity and I think that's a, a decent way to describe it. But I'm assuming you watched quite a bit of, of film on this. And so I was wondering what you thought of the role that Gasol plays at the back end of the defense and adversely Serge Ibaka. Do you find that there's a large difference between the way they navigate the back end? Probably not. I mean, I think both those players are really experienced and really good at seeing everything in front of them. You know, I, I think Gasol is former defensive player of the year. He's got just this great court sense, and he, but he's not nearly as mobile, of course, as Ibaka is. So there's slightly differences there. Um, but I, I think what's, what's actually kind of interesting about this is that, yeah, I was watching, they didn't have a great defensive game against Minnesota, um, and they still won, but that was a game where they had neither of those guys. And you wouldn't necessarily associate Chris Boucher or some of the other, I mean, Ronda Hollis Jefferson, I mean, and treat and, preseason Nick Nurse was saying that Ron Alice Jefferson was one of the two players that just didn't get it <laughs> didn't get what they were doing these are not people that you would associate with as sort of having this like kind of pre-natural sense of experience and reading the backline coverages and yet what they were doing was still viable it was still they're still executing what they were trying to do with those guys so I think the the nice thing about what the system is is that because everybody is sort of responsible for everything, they're able to sort of trade off. And I think there's a really good piece that Seward Zoe wrote um, about how the assistant coaches work that way. They kind of are less tied down to certain responsibilities and they're more able to shift between two of them. I think that's sort of how I view their defense as well. So I'm not sure there's, in a weird way, like they're all really good at it and none of them are super essential at it in a, in a fascinating way that I think is very different from how a lot of defenses are built where it's sort of like you're, you're built around one guy, you're built around the Rudy Gobert, you're built around the great perimeter defender, um, like Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers or whatever. So that's a kind of, it's what's I think is also very interesting about it. And maybe that doesn't hold up in the playoffs, you know, maybe in the playoffs you need the experience, but you know, that I think, they're just so good at seeing the whole everything in front of them that it kind of translates out as well as what translates out on the perimeter translates into them. So I have a question that's, I guess, tied to the All-Star game, and I, I hope you watched it for I the sake. I yeah. think you did, yeah. I saw even, I think Michael Pena even put a meme up about it. You might have been excitable about the All-Star game at certain points and disappointed at others. I can't remember <laughs> it correctly. Um but the Raptors, obviously in that final, that fourth quarter, the race to 157, Kyle Lowry played a huge part. Pascal Siakam, lesser so. Nick Nurse, the coach, obviously. Three of the Raptors' 
playing parts and roles in one of the most intense, I guess, all-star game quarters we've seen in quite some time. Do you think those things are linked, or do you think it's just Which the, uh, the NBA, the the tenacity, the, the defense? Do you think it's at all linked to Siakam, Lowry, and Nurse being part of that team, or do you think that the NBA just found the right thing this year? Yeah, I think it's probably more the latter, although it is interesting that Lowry was on the floor at the end of the game. I mean, Siakam was one of the starters. So. And Chris Paul. Yeah, I think it was interesting that, that Lowry was the guy they went with instead of Trey Young. Was Trey Young on Giannis' team? Was, yeah, yeah, it's Trey. Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting and emblematic of sort of, I would say it's less that they caused it and more that like kind of whatever conditions like kind of that facilitated this sort of more physical, more aggressive defensive style in an all-star game. Those guys were the ones that sort of fit and rose to the occasion for it. It's kind of the – I'd put the cause and effect the other way. Um, but it's interesting that Lowry was like so Lowry really in an all-star game. I mean, that it's suddenly after all these years of him looking like a fish out of water in that event, now suddenly it's perfect for him. <laughs> Yeah, that seemed like the most fun aspect, obviously for Raptors fans, that you couldn't have wished for a better All-Star game. But I thought the... I can't imagine the game would have gone on as long if, I guess, Trey Young was in there instead of Lowry. That might have been some place to attack. But it was interesting that Lowry, Siakam, Kemba Walker, Embiid, and Giannis versus, who was it, LeBron, Kawhi, Chris Paul, AD and who was the and James Harden that nobody could score that in a league where this year the pace is so high people are scoring at such high numbers that the all-star game the collection of all the most incredible amounts of talent came down to Joel Embiid post-ups and Chris Paul pick and rolls on one side and the other that that was incredible what did you think of that I think two things one it was a great tribute to Kobe um in perhaps not the most flattering way <laughs> but um i think also it shows the importance of you know role players really i mean you need you need wheel greasers for to kind of get motion to work and you know when you put a bunch of stars together what tends to happen is they your turn my turn the whole thing because they're so used to being the main guy that is finishing the plays but i mean your Danny Greens, your OG Ananobis, your, um, I mean, you're really your Serge Ibaka's. Those are not guys that play in the All-Star game, but they're very important in sort of making it easier for the Pascals and the Lowrys to do what they do. So I think that's sort of what it comes down to. Plus, I think it was a little more physical. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they, they, these are these are a bunch of players who have been through all these media appearances, all these sponsor appearances. I'm sure that they were not in like kind of their peak physical condition or peak mental condition to play in the same way that they would be for a regular season game or a playoff game. So, you know, maybe they got tired and I, I'm not sure we saw, even though the all-star game is supposed to be the showcase of these great players, I don't think it ever really shows the best of what these guys have to offer because just the whole weekend experience is so draining. You never have like, you never play a game after doing all that stuff, you know? Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess that, that's a good point, is that just because it's the greatest collection of talent doesn't mean it's the greatest showcase of basketball. But, Mike, um, just because of how long we're going to be doing this, I'm going to cut to an ad break. Do you need to... Well, listener, I guess I'll address you. 
There's an ad coming soon, so you're going to hear that, but I'll be right back with Mike. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back, still Samson Folk Hosting, still joined by Mike Prada of SB Nation and wanting to talk to you about a piece that you wrote today and how that intertwines with, of course, the Raptors on this Raptor-centric podcast. <laughs> We've been waiting for a Raptors-Celtics series for millennia at this point. Ever since both have been in the, the Eastern Conference playoff picture, I think everybody has been waiting for that series both fan bases consider the other team frauds fraudulent hopelessly destitute i guess places where basketball goes to die there's no love lost certainly not between the fans i'm sure the players don't care as much but they definitely want to win more how do you think you were you were saying that obviously the raptors you were wondering aloud does their defense hold up in the playoffs can that type of can you break through with this brand new type of defense? Well, not brand brand new, but this this newer type of defense. This it's there's an ingenuity to it and how it's being used. Can you win with that? And how do you think that would match up against the the I guess multifaceted attack that the Boston Celtics would use in a playoff series? So they played what three times this year, or have they played twice? I know they played on Christmas. They had three times. Three times. Sorry, early, had... early in the year, which was the the Grant Williams game, where Grant Williams looked yes. like he weighed eighty pounds more than Marcus All because Gasol couldn't move him an inch. And then there was Christmas, and then there was the after Christmas game. The after Christmas game, Toronto won, right? Yeah. Okay, I I think I may have missed that one, but I definitely saw the other two. It's a great matchup. I think it's a great test of sort of two different. Move. What's it's a great test of the force meeting the immovable object. I can't talk, but you know, it's you've got a Boston team that shoots a ton of three pointers, has these multi-faceted ball handlers that trigger this sort of whiplash movement that sometimes leads to really great stuff, and occasionally just leads to a bunch of jumpers. More the former than the latter, and then you have this Toronto team that almost invites teams to do that exactly what boston wants to do so it's a fascinating matchup my instinct is probably not gonna make a lot of your listeners happy i (laughs) i think boston is better built to win in the playoffs in toronto that's not to say that there's a huge difference between the two or that it wouldn't be a great series or that i might be wrong about that um but i'm I'm thinking that Boston has more ways to score when it get when possessions get tight than Toronto does, and that is ultimately going to be the difference. And I think that's I mean again Toronto's the idea of like Toronto's defense holding up in the playoffs. I think there are two ways to look at it. One of it, one way is yes, there is some some novelty aspect to it that does not exist in the playoffs because you're scouting for it and because you're raising your intensity to the level that they're they're already at. The other way to look at it, though, is that what type of shots are subject to the whims of nerves that can come into play in a playoff series? 
threes. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not saying you're going to get like Houston missing 27 threes in a row, but those are the types of shots that they give up that are sort of the pressure. If, if pressure is a huge element of this defense, I mean, there's more pressure in a playoff series than there is in a regular season game. So it really depends on how you look at it. I think my, my concern, again, is just more I, if, when the game slows down, the half-court game, I just think Boston has more ways to score than Toronto does. So it seems like it's, it's, you know, the, it's balancing on the tip of, of two, I guess, ideas, is that the, the extra pressure that seems to be a fundamental aspect or feature of the Raptors' defense should help it, in theory, if it's in the playoffs. But also on the other side of that is the, the idea that you can prepare for it and you can scheme for it and you can scout for it. And then that returns back to the idea of maybe the, the haunted house. Is there enough preparation if for you, Mike Prada, you're going into a haunted house and you're saying, listen, man, you took a week and a half and you're going into the haunted house seven times in a row. Do you think you figure it out by then? Yeah, I think that there's certainly you get a little more desensitized to it. The, the, the reason the analogy doesn't totally work, though, is that I may not be going to the same haunted house seven straight times. You know, Different haunted houses. Like, and if, if I'm going through, like, an exhibit at, um, at, like, one of these theme parks, right? The first time you go through it, you don't know where the pop-ups come from. You don't know, like, sort of where the noises come come from. You don't know when they drop some sort of thing, like, right in front of your face. You don't know exactly what those angles are. And that's why you get really scared about it. You know that they're coming, but you don't know exactly how they're coming. Unless, of course, you've done gone Yelp and looked at YouTube videos. But, let, you know, like, in theory, you're not supposed to know where these things are coming from. Toronto, the same general principle applies, but it's not like Boston would play game one. And then game two, like, the closeouts would be exactly the same. Right, right. They would be. They would. It would be different within the flow of the game. The same idea, but it wouldn't be like they're all like. It wouldn't be like, oh, Pascal's going to close at this angle to the wing at this time of the game every single time. Right. So it's right. slightly different. So the analogy doesn't totally work with like you're going through the same haunted house seven times. It's sort of. It's probably a little bit more like you're going. You're taking like a a randomized. You're going into a randomized number order. I, I, this analogy is falling apart. But. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, but I do think that to your point, there is like a desensitization thing that happens where you you're you're more used to the style, uh, and I think that certainly would make a difference in like Toronto's zone defense. And I think Boston is pretty well equipped to beat that. I know when when they played on Christmas, I think they kind of shredded. Was it Christmas or one of the games they played? They kind of Christmas. Shredded. They uh, the Raptors jumped out to that ten nothing lead, and then the Celtics. The passing was pretty crisp from then on. They went on. I I think it was a seventeen or eighteen zero run, and, there and they took over the there. game from that point. Like I don't think Siakam played in that game. So. No, the Raptors didn't have Siakam or Gasol or uh, Powell. Right. So, and but they won the next game, and the defense looked better. But that's maybe the thing you pointed to with how the Rockets. You know, sometimes these aggressive defenses they fail because they're just they're missing the one beat that's creating the tension or the pressure or the missed shot. And sometimes if you're missing that beat, 
you know, you see it in football all the time. During certain series, the offense will really have the defense's numbers. The the pace, the rhythm of it, the cadence of it will work in favor of the offense. That happens in in the NBA, too. And maybe maybe that's what happened in those different games was the cadence of the, the Boston offense was finding the right seams against Raptors defense, a Raptors defense that likes to keep other teams off kilter. But I one last question regarding this is, do you think there would be further ingenuity from Nurse, or do you think this is the extent of how wild this defense gets with this current roster construction? I mean, the man put it together a box and one defense in an NBA Finals game. I think it would be foolish to suggest that like this is the only thing <laughs> he got up his sleeve. Like, and I, I think the the um, the beauty of sort of the approach is that it is so flexible. Is that again, like the Sonic, unlike the Sonics defense, which is sort of more I thought scripted. This is much more like we have a general principle, but we can adapt that principle to whatever the conditions are. So I, I don't think that's a major concern for Toronto in a playoff series. I think Nurse has certainly proven himself to be able to come up with different wrinkles that may throw people off. I do want to go back really briefly to the point you were making about sort of the consistency of, of the defense and how there are moments where like the offense just looks like it has the defense's number because there's so many different parts that are moving, and if one's off, it really throws the whole operation off. I think you saw that a lot in the 11-game winning streak. You know, you saw that in the Indiana game in particular. I mean, they were making everything for a while, and then suddenly they couldn't make a, they couldn't make a good decision. You saw that, I think, in the Minnesota game. I think it is, it is a concern, and it is true that Toronto, I think, is more subject to, and I have to study whether this is actually true statistically, but I, I would theorize that they are more subject to boom and bust periods where they are totally you know i've you can you can appeal to me on this it's something i've written about the raptors crazy defense generates crazy results for short periods it's the reason why who is it andrew wiggins has his career high in assists in the first half against the raptors it's the reason why Jarrett culver hit his career high in three pointers in one quarter against the raptors that mm-hmm. type of defense pushing, let's say, Minnesota for those games into awkward positions forces Minnesota to respond in a different way. The stimuli, it, it needs a bounce back at some points in time, and that bounce back isn't always going to be successful for the Raptors, and we've seen it this year quite a few times. The Raptors, and you're saying you'd have to check. I'm, I'm here to tell you it's true. There are very weird occurrences in lots of these different games that the Raptors are playing because just of the how volatile their defense is, yeah. it's really tough to predict which team is going to bend or break. Because both teams, some teams have their the way they like to play. How when they played the Mavericks, I think is a good example of that. Earliest in the season, Luca kind of tore them apart because the way he read their defense was it was better than Dame read it. It was better than LeBron read it. It was better than Joel Embiid. It was better than Kawhi. He was quicker, and he saw the defense unfurling before him. And so that led to a great game from Maxi Kleber. That led to a really good Dorian Finney-Smith game. And Luka Doncic, he had a, you know, a bad scoring game. He didn't have that many assists because it was kind of the hockey assist, like the side-top-side action that created the buckets for the Mavericks. But it was that the Raptors' defense was dismantled repeatedly. And the next time they played the Mavericks, I mean, they, they had success. So maybe something was tweaked, but... The Raptors' defense, 100%. It creates these strange occurrences. Wasn't the other Mavericks game the big 30-point comeback? 
It was. It was. Yeah. So even more to the <laughs> point. So that's that, like a that like sums it up. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting whether this is a feature or a bug because I think you can spin it multiple ways. You know, this this is good. This could be a bad thing in the macro sense because you know maybe in the playoffs need consistency, but it also makes you hard to prepare for it. It means you never have a game. So it. It's interesting. So it's going to be, I think, over the course of the season, it's pretty clear that it's been mostly a feature, not a bug. But it could go either way. And that's sort of also why I'm a little worried. I would be worried. I think this was true of the Raptors last year, too. They just had this ability to, when the game was in these, what are these, do you, are you a soccer fan? So when when the game's like in one of those run of play sequences where it's like missed shot leading to early offense, leading to turnover leading to early offense, they just had this amazing ability to kind of find exactly these great shots and just make you pay on these sort of end-to-end sequences last year. But they also were fine in half-court situations because they had Kawhi Leonard. I this think year, that's they- the, uh, the Kyle Lowry of it all. I think that that's, he's very good at finding the nerve. And, and like you were saying, Pascal, living in chaos – being an agent of chaos, he definitely he lives yeah. for those situations, and he makes other teams pay for them. It's it's yeah. a unique scenario. I it's I think it's amazing. I think it's really fun to watch. That's why I thought they would win the finals, um, even before Durant. I mean, I, well, no, even before Clay Thompson got hurt, and at the beginning of the series when we weren't sure when Durant came back. But now they don't have Kawhi Leonard to in the orderly situations. Now, and Siakam has improved his offensive game, but I. It's not that they, they have come more in on the chaos and they have sacrificed, I think, some of the understandably so because they no longer have the best one on one scorer in the playoffs, period. But that, I think, is going to be a big challenge for them. In the right. Postseason. And that's where I think Boston has a major edge is because they're pretty good at chaos situations, too. Not as good as Toronto, but pretty damn good because of Smart and Jalen Brown. But they also have more ability to score when it slows down. And I, I just hate reducing basketball to that because that's such a cliche argument. But I think it's going to be a challenge for Toronto in that series and a challenge that way will make it hard to make a repeat play, deep playoff run. Yeah, I think that's 100% the biggest question that most people who are in tune with the Raptors have. How do the Raptors fare when things slow down a bit and they have to go through let's say 55 possessions of a game playing against a set drop defense. How do Lowry and Pascal navigate that area in that situation and provide efficient offense in those, in those spots? That's the biggest question. But as far as the specific Boston Raptors series, I think I'm of the mind that the Raptors front court would do a lot of heavy lifting. I think they have a lot of advantages there, but if Jason Tatum is, I think that Jason Tatum, you can make the case that he's better than Pascal Siakam. And for some people, you can make the case that Siakam's better than Tatum. But I think that Tatum has to be quite a, by a fair stretch, the best player in the series for the Celtics to win. And if he isn't, if Siakam and Tatum are close, I think that the Raptors would win that series. What do you think? I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think, um, I don't know who's better. Tatum's playing better right now, but he wasn't playing better earlier in the year. There's right. just players that it's kind of like a weird... It, I know that the two fan bases make the comparison all the damn time because I get shoved in my face a lot because I'm a big Siakam guy and I've been more of a Tatum skeptic until recently. But, you know, it, it, I Boston's got 
I, I think you're underselling Boston's sort of men options around Tatum. I mean, what makes them really tough is that they may not have the depth like six through nine that Toronto has. They may not have the ability to turn to a Terrence Davis or a Ronda Hollis Jefferson or uh, Norman Powell to kind of change games the way Toronto can. But they're, they're one through six, especially those five perimeter players they have, are very well balanced and very easily able to kind of one can carry the load and they can play off each other and they do a lot to really put pressure on you in crunch time with their two-man game with all that with many different types of combinations so i don't think that tatum has to be the best player in the series to win you know i think that walk walker plays well hayward can play well you know, you can have a moment like Jalen Brown had on Christmas where he was unstoppable. Um, I think there's still worlds where Hayward really perks up. Like, I, I think that those four, especially those four perimeter, main perimeter scorers, they've got enough where if one is having an off game, the other can kind of, they can serve as a decoy for the others. Like, I, I don't know if I totally buy that that point of view. I guess we'll... We'll see. I think I think it's actually more important for Toronto that Siakam raises game to the level of the best player in the series than it is for Boston for Tatum to do that for Boston. I just not. I'm not gonna like argue. I think that's definitely argue, um, man. <laughs> um, it's. I think that the the matchup with Kemba is pretty good for the Raptors. I think Fred plays him really well, and when asked to. The Raptors bigs are fairly good in the in the pick and roll actions. I do. You bring up Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown lesser so to me because he was really riding a hot jump shot in on Christmas. But Gordon Hayward, when they run that staggered screen option for him at the top, he's really dangerous. And especially against a Raptors type of defense, when he's walking into the middle of the floor, he he has a lot of size to pass and make decisions from that area. He he definitely he made it really tough for Raptors quite a few times in the past couple of years. Just how they defend that that action. So it's it's it, it's it's an interesting thing, and I I do like the point you make is that one of Hayward Brown, uh, Kemba or Tatum can do it. But I I guess maybe I'm being hyperbolic or cliche in that I think it'll trend towards one guy. I I. I guess I'm viewing it that way, and I think it, it. I think it might trend towards Tatum as opposed to other people. But you know, I, I definitely could be wrong in that sense. It probably will, um, and certainly has for them over the past few months. But what's interesting, I mean, like if you watch the end of the, they had this win over Oklahoma City recently. I thought was really interesting and instructive. Um, and I think it'd be hard to do this against Toronto, which would be make this a really interesting matchup. I'm not even sure you would do this to, but they basically hunted down Danilo Gallinari with three different people screening for him. They kept trying to move Gallinari to a less advantageous matchup or to a better matchup. But when you have Brown, Tatum and Hayward, and they're all willing to screen for Kemba and Kemba's all willing to screen back for them to sort of get the right matchup. It's really hard when to, it's really hard if you're that type of player. I'm not sure. I mean, one advantage Toronto has is that they don't, it's not quite clear who that player would be for them because they're so strong defensively all the way around. But those guys, 
are willing to kind of flip between screener and ball handler, screener, scorer, whatever. Like if Kemba, you're right. I think Kemba for is, is a good matchup for Toronto with Kemba because of Lowry and Van Fleet and. Um, well, also, you pointed out in your piece, the scram switch is definitely a big feature of the Raptors' offense, and that does put quite a large playmaking onus on Kemba if he's taking a lot of those possessions. And how he does in that situation, I think, will loom large. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely, a. It, I think Toronto is well-equipped to deal with those guys as compared to, say, Miami. You know, you know Duncan Robinson's not going to be able to play if those two teams play in that series. They're just going to hunt him down. But... Kemba is also, especially now that Tatum is emerging, like Kemba can be a decoy. Like Kemba is happy to do that stuff. He can run off screens. He can kind of draw attention, and that takes attention away from Tatum. So I think it's, I think in, if you think of it individually, like, yes, there are ways to stop all four of those guys. I just don't know if you can stop all four of them at the same time because of the way they kind of roam off each other. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how it plays out. I mean, in a lot of ways, Hayward is sort of the, the tipping point because, you know, Brown, he gets so much in transition, and, you know, maybe you can take that away. Tate, Walker, you've got good matchups for. Tatum, you've got good matchups for. But if if you're loading to Tatum and then Hayward's able to beat you with the spot up or with what you call kind of the middle – the middle screen stuff like that's really the tipping point that may determine the series i hope they play because you know as you mentioned the four guys making it happen for boston all intelligent all very i guess it would be fluid in the way that they play you you talked about switching between screener ball handler that type of thing against a very fluid raptors defense i think would make for a lot of interesting sets a lot of interesting basketball and i think even though some have softened on how much they like Brad Stevens. Obviously, Nick Nurse has trended the other way. It would be a really good coaching exhibit as well, or at least I, I would hope. But it would there's... be a great series. It would be yeah, a yeah. terrific series. Um, <laughs> give Boston the slight edge, but it's it's tight. We'll, we'll keep that wager. The wager, the uh, the winner, I guess, the whoever whatever we win is to be determined, TBD. But we'll, we'll keep that wager going for now. That was Michael Pena and I had the uh, the disagreement about Rondé Hollis Jefferson prior to the year. He thought he wasn't an NBA player. I said, I think he's got a bit of game. And so I guess... I would have taken your side of the bet. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad. I, I think you're wrong about that. Yeah, well, he was on recently and he said, he was like, yeah, I guess, you know, he, he can play. And yeah, so he did and definitely features well in the Raptors system. But there's one more thing. I'd like to ask you about, and it's about Jaron Jackson Jr. <laughs> I love Jaron Jackson Jr. And you bring up, fun, man. you bring up being a unicorn and how unique he is. And he is very unique. I love watching Pascal Siakam. Jaron Jackson Jr., Pascal Siakam is very, very unique. And the way that he stretches the floor vertically for transition, the way that he covers and can test shots defensively is incredible to watch. But Jaron Jackson Jr., the the pull-up and the, the help side defense, the mobility, if you could, in, in just a couple words, maybe the TLDR, just describe what you've seen from Jaron Jackson Jr. so far this year. He's raw. He doesn't have it all figured out. But, I mean, we talked about 
when we talked about the All-Star game, we talked about how the game seemed kind of stagnant in a lot of ways, even though it was super high intensity, because there were no wheel greasers, right? To sort of just kind of be the glue that kind of makes life easier for everybody else, keep the tracks moving, kind of keep the flow moving. You need those guys to actually run real offense. Jaron Jackson Jr. is potentially the platonic ideal of that type of player. I think maybe the closest thing back in the day was like an Al Horford type of player. Um, He's not quite as strong as Al Horford. He's got much more range. He's got that crazy little shot put that he can just get off at any different points. He's not there yet, but I think there's potential for him to be that type of player. And I just think that type of player, when you have that guy, it just gives you so much more flexibility to take on players who have weaknesses but are really strong in certain areas because you have this other guy that's able to facilitate so much of what they do. And I think you see, even though you have, it's not really reflecting the numbers yet because he fouls too much and because he's not particularly strong in the post yet and because he's not a great rebounder yet, they're still able to play so many different types of lineups, I think, because of his versatility. So I just think... I just love players like that. I just think those players are always underappreciated, never really, because you can't really sum up what they do in like kind of one pop. And I just, I don't know, I've always been drawn to those types of players in in the league. You know, the the sort of, it's very cliche to call them blue guys, you know, but because I think that term gets overused, but just sort of, I like to call them wheel greasers, like just guys that kind of make, make, everybody else move a little bit better because of all the different things that they do. And, and he's, he's the next, the next generation of that. And that's always what I've thought a, a unicorn is instead of just tall guy who's amazing at basketball. It's wheel greaser almost sounds like, and I, I'm certain you don't mean it that way, but almost like a pejorative because Jaron Jackson's Jr. Jaron Jackson Jr.'s potential seems immense higher than that of let's say a wheel greaser or an Al Horford. I guess in my mind, Wendell Carter Jr. is the the future Al Horford to me, but what a wheel greaser who who's the best All Star wheel greaser in the league right now? Then I think I think Draymond Green was sort of the guy, mm. this type of player for many years, um, and he still is. I think when 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 Leonard was on the Raptors, Siakam was this type of player um, in a different way. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Marcus Saul was this type of player. Um, I think Horford is, 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 is someone I've always kind of thought is this type of player. Um, J.J. Redick was sort of a guard version, although I, I think it was more just right. his shooting. Um, you know, Serge Ibaka for many... I mean, it's funny, the Raptors have sort of collected a lot of these guys. Lowry is very much the point guard version, actually. they Totally. I think it's one of the reasons why Toronto is... I mean, I'm not surprised that they're playing as well as they are. Maybe I didn't think they'd be 40 and 15 or whatever they are, but I was kind of stunned that they were not the obvious sort of third seed to start That's, the year. Yeah. Because they have so many of these guys that like are positive wheel greasers. They just do a lot of things that help you win, and it's hard to sum it all up. So that I, it's interesting that you consider that a pejorative. I guess – that's what's sort of the central tension of basketball, right? I mean, totally. this is really big, big philosophical, but like it's a five-man game that's so much of an individual sport, and yet 
not every individual can shine the most. Well, you it's me guys who help others shine. Yeah, totally. It's for Kyle Lowry. I often refer to him as the pace master of the of the Raptors, and I've written a lot about Serge Ibaka and how he makes the the Raptors go a lot of the time. His just his proclivity for the middle of the floor and how he opens up that area of the Raptors as far as scoring there with his mid-range jumper, his ability to short roll, his playmaking has gotten better there, is is such a boon for their offense. Pascal Siakam creating the mismatches, Kyle Lowry recognizing the advantages that come off of that, pointing them out, kind of getting the ball to that point, all of them working in concert to one big wheel grease, one, one very quick wheel, I suppose. But yeah. in my mind... I think of a maybe a PJ Tucker. I I, I never See, thought of that term for. Uh, and I I do view Jaron Jackson Jr. as a future All Star potentially superstar. So I never viewed it in that way. I guess. Yeah, PJ Tucker is an interesting one because he's sort of on defense. He is that on offense. He's just a specialist. Yeah, so he's kind of got like the like. I think I think there's a. I'd never see. I think it's in a lot of ways this type of player is the opposite of a specialist, right? Mm, tinker in everything, totally. They have to be sort of good at everything. I mean, you think James of, Johnson maybe another kind of guy who's like that. Yeah, I mean, he's not, but but good less, at it, but yes. less better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you run a website. I mean, these are the editors. This is what editors do. We actually we don't have an editor right now. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Easy. Maybe maybe Blake um, Murphy moved on. Yeah, but like these are the people that like. I think um, there's actually an interesting parallel between the two because, you know, you think of an editor as somebody that just like kind of takes in copy, reads it, you know, gives suggest gives edits and checks to make sure the grammar is right and it goes on. But like a really good editor is someone who comes up with interesting ideas, talks them out with you, sort of helps you kind of get out of a sticky situation where you're struggling to figure out what your point is, you know, who does a lot of just sort of this maintenance work where they're just sort of like, Hey, what are you thinking? Like, what, what are some things that interest you? Like helps sort of frame your ideas and then does all that other stuff. Like, I thought the best example of an editor that I saw when I was younger, I think it came out in 2000. When did spotlight come out? Because I can't remember who plays the editor. Lee, the maybe Lee. Book. The yeah, guy. but yeah, I didn't he, watch he did a really great job of editing, and they showcased that. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's one of those skills that's like not really about the editing, but I I think if you it's very hard to say this is what an editor does. He kind of just they kind of just do. It's the sum of all they do that makes them valuable, not any individual one thing that makes them valuable. And I think that. That's very similar to, you know, a Jaron Jackson Jr. type of player. It's the unique sum of all they do. And so you can't, it's, it's hard to measure beyond. I mean, we, we've been trying to figure out how to value these guys for millennia. I mean, not millennia, that, you know, decades. <laughs> I think it's always going to be challenging because it's all a matter of what are the specific skills that add up for that specific organization or team that may or may not transfer over to another organization or team, or maybe they do. Um, I mean, it's, it, any organization, you go up and down, you need good middle managers. Otherwise, I mean, you can't have everybody who's trying to gun for the top. 
I, I have to let you know. I've been referring to Lowry as the pace master, but going forward, I will be referring him to, <laughs> to him as the Raptors editor. And and you can you can receive credit if you like. I'll I'll, I'll say All in right. concert with Mike Prada. But I think that's what I'm gonna. That's the the operative word I'm gonna use going forward. The term. Now I may be speaking a bit from personal experience because this is what. I did for so long, and I may be a little biased on like kind of the value of. Or I felt that uh, I felt like I was talking to a guy who had done some editing in my life. That's what I felt. I'm gonna do it seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. I'll, I'll let you get out of here, but before you go, feel free to to plug whatever you think people should be reading or listening to, and uh, yeah, the floor is yours, mate. Yeah. Why don't you guys read about how you're you're greatest rival are actually real serious title contenders for you guys <laughs> love reading that um yeah I, I don't know that that's the most recent stuff i just there's a lot of really cool things we do on estimation not just the team sites but also on the main site pina you guys you've gotten to get to know really well matt allen tech does a remarkable job covering the WNBA uh and also nba things Ricky O'Donnell is a terrific editor and also just a great blogger. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting people, but you know, it's a fun Motley crew that we've we've got, and you know, that's sort of what I would love to plug. And other than that, like I kind of got all the pieces I've been doing this year up on in a Twitter moment somewhere. I enjoy perusing, going back through that if you would like. Perfect. Well, Mike, I thank you very much. It has been has been very very fun to chat with you. I've I've liked the back and forth. I've liked the rapport. It's been good. I'd like to thank you very much for coming on, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This is you guys do such incredible work with uh, the devotion to really covering this team. Is just it's it's really. I joked about it at the open, but it really is remarkable. It's one of the things that's been kind of fun. I've worked with a lot of different. Canada writers over the years and it's just it, there is something that there's something about this team and the way you guys really attack it that is really fun to watch thank you and yeah thank you on behalf of of my contemporaries but listener that's it for me that's it for Mike and that's it for you thank you very much for listening Mike a second thank you and for me don't worry about checking me out anywhere if you're listening to this podcast you already support me enough but whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye. New home ownership can be a real eye-opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from The Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at homedepot.com workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101, only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at homedepot.com slash workshops. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.